At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. And if you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the middle of your Bible to Psalm number 139. Psalm 139. Today we're beginning a a short series that I have entitled Core Truth. And in this series on core truth, we're going to be examining some foundational, fundamental, essential truths. Now, when you talk about core truth, we could have a 15 to 20 part series. But what we're going to do is really have four Sundays, the four Sundays of this month, and we're going to be looking at Four foundational truths. And these truths that we're going to examine are very practical truths. In fact, I believe they're very pertinent in today's culture because today's culture has drifted from a daily awareness of the majesty of God. And as we look at this core truth, this core truth will be new to some of us, uh, to many of us, though it will be familiar. But here's what we need to be frank about. I mean, this is true in my own life and probably true in yours. But all too often what happens is we become cynical about core truth. You know, we hear core truth being presented and we say, yeah, I I know that. And then we quickly tune out. And yet, because this core truth is fundamental, because it is foundational, because it is essential, we need to be reminded of core truth from time to time. The Apostle Peter understood that well when he wrote his second letter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He wrote to those followers of Jesus, and he said, I am writing to remind you of these things even though you know them. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. In other words, what Peter was saying to those believers is I want to refresh your perspective about what is some core truth. Now, we want to be honest. I mean, we have this natural tendency, I believe, to lose our sense of wonder, particularly our sense of wonder about God. And when we become disconnected from core truth, it results in a loss of joy in our life. It it results in us having an everyday eternal perspective that is more shallow than it should be. It results when we become disconnected from core truth in weakening our worship of God. Now, our text for the next two weeks in this series is going to be Psalm 139. But before we get there, I want to ask some questions, and I want you to honestly reflect. I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud, but just an honest reflection between you and God. Here's the first question. Have you ever wished that someone who was highly significant knew you by name? Think about that for a moment. By the way, if you've ever experienced that where someone highly significant knew your name, you would know that your emotional confidence spikes when that happens. Second question I want you to reflect on. 
Do you ever compare yourself to other people? You know, finding yourself wishing, oh, I wish I was taller, or I wish I was thinner, or I wish I was more talented, or more athletic, or whatever. You ever compare yourself to others? And then here's the third question to reflect on. Do you ever find yourself feeling insignificant or inferior? Do you ever have a little voice going in your head that says, you know what, you don't really have much to offer? Or maybe you have a negative view of yourself. If you said yes to any of those questions, then the core truth of Psalm 139 is for you. The reality is we all wrestle with those kinds of questions from time to time. If you have your Bibles open to Psalm 139, I want to read verses 1 to 6, and also I'll be reading verses 13 to 16. Invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. Verse 1, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The title I've given to today's core truth message is, God Knows Me. And we're going to look at two key things today. First of all, he knows all about me in verses 1 to 6. And then secondly, he meticulously designed me in verses 13 to 16. Now, Psalm 139 was authored by David. It is a very intimate psalm, but it is a psalm that mines the majesty of God. And the first thing we're going to see in those first six verses is he knows all about me. Now, the very first word in verse 1 in Hebrew is the word Lord. Your translation may indicate something else, but the very first word is the word Lord, the word Yahweh, the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. And Yahweh is the God of covenant relationship with people. Yahweh is the personal God. And David is saying, Lord, you the one 
who are the personal God. You have searched me. Very vivid language is used here. It's a, the, the language of diligent, diligent investigation. Uh, this very verbal phrase was used of miners searching out precious ore. It was used of scribes researching scripture. It was used of spies seeking to uncover secret information. You have searched me. The idea here is a thorough, thorough search that you have done. You have searched me and known me. In other words, he's saying you are intimately acquainted with me. Everything that can be known about me, God, you know it. You know every detail. Look at what he says in verse two. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. There's a poetic expression that occurs often in the Hebrew language. It's called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. And in a merism, what you would do is you would give like this opposite and that opposite. And the idea is it's not only this opposite and that opposite, but everything that might go in between. Like you could say, from the opening of my eyes to the closing of my eyes, that's a merism. It means everything in between. When I open my eyes, when I close my eyes, and everything that comes between those two things. He says, when I sit down and when I rise up, what I do in every moment of the day, God, you know this. You understand my thought from afar. He's saying, you know my motivations even before I act. That's how transcendent God is. And it's amazing because so often we don't even know our own motives and our own motivations, but God knows them. And that's why Paul was able to write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 and say, the time is coming when the Lord will bring both to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts because God knows that even when we don't know that about ourselves. He knows everything about us. We have a theological term for this. It's called omniscience. Omniscience is a word that simply means this, God knows all things. And when we say God knows all things, we mean God knows all things. If he didn't know all things, he wouldn't be God. And David goes on to say there, he said, you know where I go. Verse three, you scrutinize my path and my lying down. There's another merism there. He said, he said, you know where I go. You know my whole daily routine. Nothing is hidden from you. He says, you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. God, you know all my personal characteristics. You know all of my quirks. You know all of my preferences. And you know, this is well illustrated by the event that happens in John chapter four with Jesus when he sits down with the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember that story? And he sits down with her, and she's just startled by the whole conversation for several reasons. First of all, she is startled because, remember, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and in turn, the Samaritans hated the Jews. And so, first of all, she is startled that a Jew, Jesus, would speak to her, a Samaritan. Secondly, she was startled by the fact that he, a Jewish man, would speak to a Samaritan woman because in that culture, that certainly wasn't going to happen. 
But most importantly, she was startled by a third thing. And that was that Jesus knew all about her. He knew everything about her. He knew all the dirty details. He knew that she'd been married and divorced five times. He knew that she was then living with another man. He knew all that stuff. But here's what Jesus was ultimately communicating to her. God knows all that, and yet the Heavenly Father is interested in having a relationship with you. The Heavenly Father desires, Samaritan lady, for you to be a worshiper. And the same thing is true for me and for you. He knows all about us. He knows all of our failings. He knows all of our warts. He knows all of our little secrets. He knows all of our weaknesses. And even knowing all of that, he says, you know what? I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to be a worshiper. You look at verse four and he says, God, you even know my thoughts before I express them. Even before there's a word in my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all. Even before I can formulate the words, you already know what I'm going to say. You know, that that has a lot of, adds a lot of perspective to even something like prayer. You know, prayer is not designed so that we can inform God, you know. Uh, Attention, Lord, I know you don't know what's going on, but let me just kind of fill you in a little bit. He knows it all even before it comes out of our mouth. Prayer is really there as an expression of our dependence on him. That's why it exists. It's not we're going to inform him about something he doesn't know about. I just love that phrase there at the end of verse 4. You know it all. How much is included in all? Even down to things like Jesus says in Matthew 10, 30, the very hairs on your head are numbered. Now, that's easier for some of us than maybe for others, but you don't know what I'm saying. I mean, that, that's amazing, you know. I, I'm combing my hair today, and I just noticed there's several hairs that fell out. I have no clue how many hairs are on my head, but God knows exactly. And you know what's amazing about his knowledge? His omniscience extends to the what-ifs. This has always amazed me. Even to the what ifs, his knowledge extends. You know, in in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking to many of the cities in which his miracles were performed, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. And he makes an amazing statement to them because they didn't respond to his miracle ministry at all. And so he says to them in Matthew 11, verse 21, he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, those are two cities that were judged in the Old Testament, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they, Tyre and Sidon, would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I know these things. I even know to the what ifs. And then in verse 23 of Matthew 11, he says, and you, Capernaum, If the miracles had occurred in Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, which occurred in you, Capernaum, Sodom would have remained to this very 
day. His omniscience extends to the what ifs. What if I had gone to that school? What if I had married that person? What if this hadn't happened? What if I had taken that job? He knows all of this stuff. That's why he says, you know it all. That's core truth. But what's really interesting is how we tend to think sometimes because we we begin to think, you know what? I don't know that God really gets it. I don't know that he really understands me. I don't think God really has a handle on all this stuff. Oh, really? He is omniscient. His omniscience extends even to all of the what ifs that are out there. Look at verse five. He says, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. This is not the normal word for hand in Hebrew. It's the word for a palm. And it seems to me that part of the picture is like we are are cupped in his hand. And if you think of God just cupping you in his hand, would he know everything about you? Would he be able to observe everything about you and know everything? Yeah. How true. That's how intimate his knowledge is of you and me. Notice what he says in verse six. He goes, such knowledge as I've just been talking about, it's too wonderful for me. It's beyond my ability to grasp. It's just incomprehensible. My brain breaks trying to figure out how can you do this, God? And then he says, it's too high. I cannot attain to it, which is actually a military term. Do you know Herodotus, the historian, visited the city of Babylon, and he wrote in his history that the walls of Babylon were 300 feet high. Now, now many scholars think that's an exaggeration. Most scholars will agree that the walls of the city of Babylon were at least 85 feet high. That's seven to eight stories tall. And the walls of the city of Babylon were 25 feet thick, Two chariots could pass on top of the wall. So here's the picture he's drawing about the knowledge of God. He says it's like standing in front of walls that were 85 feet, eight stories tall, 25 feet thick. He says, I can't get there. I can't attain to that. That's just too high for me. To translate it into today's vernacular, he was really saying this. When I think about your knowledge, God, of me, it totally blows my mind. It is utterly stunning. You know me, and you know it all, and yet you still desire to have a relationship with me. First thing David says is he's, speaking with God. He knows all about me. He knows all my quirks, all my thoughts, all my preferences, all my warts. Secondly, he meticulously designed me in verses 13 to 16. Now these verses, verses 13 to 16, are highly pertinent in any discussion that ever happens related to the subject and practice of abortion. 
any discussion that ever happens has to work through Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. Notice he says there, as he talks about God meticulously designing him, he says, you formed my inward parts. Literally in Hebrew, it says, you formed my kidneys. And you're going, why does he say that? I mean, what's so special about the kidneys? Well, this was a figure of speech in Hebrew for the internal inner being of who we are for the soul that we have, the real me. You know, we all live inside of an earth tent. The real me, the real soul, the real inner being lives inside of the earth tent. And he says, you, God, form that, that my personality, the real me. And he says in verse 13, you wove me in my mother's womb as one would weave a tapestry. So he says, God, you wove together my genetic structure. You know what that means? That means that you are not a product of chance. You do not have some sort of random existence. And and all this begins to get him launching into praise in verse 14. He says, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully made. It means marvelously, astonishingly made. I am wonderfully made. It means uniquely and personally made. And yet, so often we whine. I wish I was different. As if it was some sort of random thing that happened. How did he do this? Well, verse 15. He says, my frame was not hidden from you. The bone structure, the very bone structure that I have, you were involved in that. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and wrought in the depths of the earth. The New Living Translation says, when I was formed in utter seclusion. You know, and in David's day, the activity in the womb to the human eye was as remote as anything could be. They didn't have the technology to look inside there. And so he's describing activity in the womb. And he says, my bone structure wasn't hidden from you when I was made in secret in the depths of the earth, when I was skillfully wrought there. Very interesting phrase. It refers to embroidering something with colors. You know, the picture is God's just doing this careful little work, bringing this color and that color to who we are. In, in verse 16, we have very vivid, vivid imagery. Notice he says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. That little phrase, unformed substance, in Hebrew is the word golem, G-O-L-E-M. The golem is the word for embryo. Golim comes from another verb, galan, G-A-L-A-N, and galan means to wrap up and kind of fold carefully together. And that's what God was doing with the embryo, kind of wrapping and folding it together. What, What he's really saying is, God, your design extends to the embryonic stage from the very beginning of development. In your book, what an amazing statement, were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. 
The New Living Translation says, every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Men and women, that's a mystery. I don't understand how that works. Every moment of my life was laid out before a single day had passed. I mean, this this is the, the nature of mystery. Because you and I make choices, and yet there are no accidents. It means that there has never been an accident in your life. There has never been a coincidence in your life. Paul picks up on this truth in in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 10, and he makes this declaration. We are his workmanship. That word means a work of art. It means beautiful handiwork. It means a masterpiece. Now let that settle into your soul for a moment. From God's perspective, we can say, I am a masterpiece. You are a masterpiece. You are a work of art. And he goes on to say, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, and that is for good works. In other words, the plan from the beginning was to use you. He had a plan and a purpose for your life and my life. It's not just some random existence we have. He meticulously designed you. And you know, we truly, men and women, are an amazingly designed bundle of cells. I was just reading this week, Some 37 plus trillion cells make up us. 200 different types of cells. And we lose sight of this. You know, you can take the small letter O in a regular font and 30 to 40,000 cells will fit in that. And then there's another whole dimension because each cell contains 100 trillion atoms. We are a living, walking micro-universe. On the atom level, 125 million atoms would fit in a period in a regular font. 37 plus trillion cells. And by the way, each cell has a timetable on when it should grow and when it should divide. We have 171 billion cells in our brain. He meticulously designed you. Meticulously. And the depth of the complexity of this, we haven't even fully discovered yet. I love the quote of Steve Farrar in this regard. I want to read it to you. It's, it's a little bit long, but it's so good. Here's what he wrote. 
You are a piece of work. And you've been created for a purpose. You did not exist by the sheer coincidence of chance and time that caused you to evolve from the stagnant slime of some ancient, accidental, inexplicable drip of water. He says, there's a far greater chance of a 66 Camaro SS evolving by itself in my garage than a human being evolving from a single-cell amoeba in some primordial stew. Got away with words. He goes on to write, you exist by the will and skill of the most accomplished craftsman in all of the universe. As a matter of fact, he's the same one who spoke the universe into existence. He formed you. He shaped you. He molded you, and he birthed you. And he goes on to say, and he did it for a reason. He's got something specific for you to do. Nobody else can do it quite the same way you can because no other person in history has been put together in quite the same way that he crafted you. And so he says, that makes you significant. And he closes with these thoughts. He says, you probably don't think about it too often. We don't. But you are one remarkable piece of work. Each one of us have a unique fingerprint and a unique DNA. Ever ask yourself the question, why? You have a unique fingerprint and a unique DNA because he desires that you might make a unique imprint on other people. The core truth is that God knows me. He knows all about me. He meticulously designed me. I want to go back to some of those questions we asked you to reflect on at the beginning of our time. Remember the first question? Have you ever wished someone highly significant knew you by name? Guess what? The most significant person in all of the world knows you by name. The living God knows you by name. The living God knows the number of hairs on your head. The living God personally designed you as a unique work of art. Second question, do you ever compare yourself with others? Wish you were taller, thinner, talented, whatever it may be. Yeah? Third question, you ever find yourself feeling insignificant? Feeling inferior? You know, when, when I was in my mid-teens, I was very slender. I like that word. Many people use the word skinny. In fact, I was so skinny, I didn't want to be skinny, and so I would, several times a day, for quite a long period of time, I would make myself some very heavy protein drinks. Protein, 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 protein. I put three raw eggs in there, mix the whole thing up, drink that thing. I didn't want to be 
slander. I remember one day there was this girl, I had some interest in her, and she looked over at me and she said, Bruce, have you ever thought about lifting weights? You know, the best compliment I got in my mid-teens about my physique happened one day when we played tackle football on the beach there in New Jersey. One of the guys said, you know what, that Bruce, he's pretty wiry. About the best I could come up with. I wished I was like my friend Craig. Oh, I'll tell you, Craig, he was something. Craig had these really large biceps. I mean, whoo! He never lifted a weight. He was born that way. Why, that's not fair. I mean, I have biceps like Craig. You know what happens? We spend a lot of our energy comparing ourselves with other people. We spend a lot of our energy feeling defeated, feeling insignificant, feeling inferior, when the reality is we are a special work of art, carefully designed by the creator himself, and he wants to use us for his glory. Now, I mean, we, we, we gotta be real about this. I mean, not everybody's gonna be Craig. Not everybody's gonna be Moses. Not everybody's gonna be Queen Esther. Not everybody's gonna be Martin Luther. But he still has a plan and a purpose. He still has prepared good works for us to live out. And that plan, men and women, began in the womb. You know, God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you, I knew you. The design and the plan actually goes back before the sperm and the egg even come together. Galatians 1.15, Paul says, God set me apart from my mother's womb to do what he called me to do. Isaiah 49.5, Isaiah says, the Lord formed me from the womb to be his servant. By the way, the same thing is true of Bruce. He formed me from the womb to be his servant. The same thing is true of you. Whether you even know him or not, he formed you from the womb to be his servant. God knows you. God knows all about you. God meticulously designed you. This, men and women, is core truth. It's core truth that we often lose sight of. So what's some life response we can have? Having looked at this core truth, how should we respond? Well, I'm gonna suggest two things. Number one, seek to embrace his design. You were uniquely embroidered by God. And we need to seek to embrace his design. James says this in in James 4, 8, draw near to God. And a lot of times we don't feel like we're very close to God. Well, if that's true, who moved? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We need to seek to embrace his design. Just drop the comparisons. You were divinely designed to be his servants. Second life response. Not only do you seek to embrace his design, but seek to live out his calling. Because you see, we've all been shaped for ministry. And I like to use that word shape as an acronym. Each letter stands for something. 
The S in shape stands for spiritual gifts. When you know Christ, he has given to you a spiritual gift or more than one spiritual gifts. You have spiritual gifts, and that's part of his shaping you for ministry. The H in shape stands for heart passion. There are things that you care about more than I care about, and there's things I care about more than you care about. That's part of the heart passion that God designed into us. The A stands for abilities. They may be natural abilities or learned abilities that he has allowed us to acquire, but he uses even our abilities to shape us for ministry. The P stands for personality. Some of us are extroverts, some of us are introverts, but all of that's part of the design of God. And then the E is the one that everybody leaves out most frequently, and the E stands for experience, spiritual gifts, heart, passion, abilities, personality, experience. Nothing you have ever experienced has gone to waste in God's economy. Everything that's ever happened to you, positive or negative, he uses to shape you for ministry. The core truth, God knows you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for David. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you for this truth that is so important for us. We need to remember that we are a masterpiece, uniquely created to leave a unique imprint on other people. We thank you that you know us, and because you know us, you'll never let us go. Even when we have twists and turns in life, and even when there's times of trouble, you're always going to be there for us because you know us. And we're thankful for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 